Hello and welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling? Yeah, okay. Um, I feel like lockdown's finally starting to get to me. Um, yeah, my, I, I was like, you know when it's like lit when there's like a, there's a little thing that will happen and that'll be the thing that pushes you over the edge? Yeah. So I was feeling down. Like January sucks. Anyway, this January has been long and February has been real mm. fucking long. Um, and I was like, okay, I can just about do it. Then they announced, you know, all their tiered letting us out thing and the dates and like all the targets and stuff like that so it's like okay i reckon i can roughly do this i can do this so you know it's fine guilty gear comes out in april i could do this <laughs> and then guilty gear gets delayed and that fucking destroyed me <laughs> i could barely get out of bed it doesn't help that my dog still can't go for walks so i haven't been I mean, out I, would... I haven't been out in the woods so i haven't so i'm like I do not like being locked up. I never thought I'd be the kind of person who can't handle being locked up. I can I can handle it. It's just the the kind of retreating horizon. I don't, you know, buy Mortal Kombat <laughs> as a as a replacement for Guilty Gear. But it's the the only one that's got good netcode. <laughs> that people I love play. Mortal Kombat. I love Mortal Kombat. I've always loved Mortal Kombat, but I'm a scrub, so, you know. <laughs> No, um, speaking, but um, but yeah, it's weird. Like, I need to be outside. I need to f- feel the wind on me. I need to be in the trees. I need to be around the trees. I need to be charged by nature. <laughs> Otherwise, my magics don't work. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of Mortal Kombat, um, there's another '90s revival um, that I've really been enjoying this week, yeah. which is um, slowly uh, hounding a privileged woman until she um, dies. <laughs> Uh, which is the <laughs> one of the too much one of the one of the um, British press's favourite pastimes. <laughs> much um, in the same way, a young Hugh frantically tried to learn how to do fatalities and failed. They want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had this. Uh, we've had royal drama uh, yeah. in the past week and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had uh, Meghan Markle and Harry, Prince Harry, talking on camera about their kind of. I won't call him Exile Prince Harry anymore. He's no prince. Royal. He's no prince of mine. Not after he <laughs> left us to go to California. <laughs> and they did. They sat down and did an Oprah interview, and it was incredibly funny. <laughs> it was very funny. I was looking forward to it um, because you know, there's like there is like there are some people on the left fully like I don't want to think about the royal family. They should all just be you know guillotined. I'm never going to think mm. about them ever. And then there's ones that are more like me and you, who are like, probably know more about royal protocol than most monarchists, <laughs> because it's so baffling and entertaining. And, you know, it, we it, can't it, get rid of them. It's it's incredible that, of course, I mean, like, it doesn't particularly matter, but then I remind myself that, like, 90% of all wars were over dynastic struggles, so... <laughs> <laughs> you have, you have. Do you think basic... Harry's going to raise an army in California and come back to claim the throne? I think that the prince across the sea <laughs> will one day return in a helicopter when his country needs him, bombarding the UK with mixed race children. Um... <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, there's probably some people who are fucking ranting and raving about that exact scenario. <laughs> no, the, 
what's amazing about this is that it's come up at a time when um culture war dominates everything and of course this is no exception mm-hmm. um him marrying a woman of color and mm-hmm. you know it fit it's slotting so nicely into kind of old-fashioned notions of doing your duty and then a let's say more commercialized um like celebrity awareness the model of the royals as dutiful like whatever that duty happens to be and then kind of them as celebrities mm-hmm. you know so it, it more liberally minded celebrities let's say yeah um and it's just amazing how well it's fit into that you know <laughs> yeah um yeah so you know there was a couple of things that came out everyone knows what everyone must know what's happened about because of it you know there was the the accus well the accusation she said that someone in the royal family asked how dark the baby would be that's not surprising um mm. she said that she didn't know much about the royal family and went into it naive i believe she went into it 100% naive um but i can't imagine after speaking to philip once that you know the sub- the notion that it's a racist family wouldn't be a thing that was on the cards um and then the other thing the one that was like really telling was the trying to find help for depression and just being nothing, nothing, nothing at all. In the same way, like, they did it, you know, like they did it to Diana. And I imagine they've done... The thing is, these are the ones that we've heard about. We have no idea how many times, like, a royal or a minor royal has said, like, I can't deal, help me. And they've just said, nah, fuck it. It's it's very odd, because, like, I'm not going to say that I, I particularly have empathy for anyone in that, in in that situation like she came across it early on in the interview Meghan Markle as like very naive but with a very a very particularly modern view of like what aristocracy is Hmm. like she knows what aristocracy and the royals are on paper Hmm. which is oh they've got all these titles and all these history but she views that as if almost as if the 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 history is like some kind of unique selling point and if it's like a a a consumer identity almost Hmm. Yeah. You know, whereas those of us who've lived and have read history among, like, among an aristocratic society, which, you know, the aristocracy has taken a big roar back in the 20th century, after a kind of low <laughs> mid-century where they were losing their houses, they've really come roaring back. So it's, you know, never surprising to find a lord owns a fucking factory again, or something yeah. like that. What she seems to like absolutely fail to understand and perhaps understandably given the coverage that the aristocracy and royalty gets is that they literally believe they are a different species of human. To be fair, you've seen Charles's fingers. They're not the same (laughs) as us. Yeah. Apparently his fingers get swollen when he travels. Yeah. It doesn't really explain it why it happens in Norfolk. (laughs) (laughs) That that sounds like the kind of thing that like Octodad would say to hide the fact that he's an octopus in a suit. (laughs) All I'm saying. It's, it's just they they don't they people just don't get that the reason why it's so horrifying is that they believe they're literally a different species mm. of human mm. like that they can they can pay lip service to equality and anything like that but the whole point of that breeding is that they believe they are better yeah they are believe they believe they have a a all their culture the of manners right. their culture of manners their their way that they um approach ownership down down to a psychological level it is all bred in into the fact that they own things Mm. deep in their bones they own things and they own people well yeah there's like um you know the stuff with 
what's the Charles stuff about I can't remember which part of the country it is, but if you die without a will then he gets your stuff. Um, oh, something like Duchy of Lancaster. Yeah, or... something like that. Um, but like, there was one of the things that they were talking about. It was like supposed to be kind of like, isn't it kind of weird and anachronistic? But it's actually, it's actually, it's unhinged. Um, mm. Where Harry was teaching her how to properly curtsy before meeting her when going round to Fergie yes. and Andrew's house, and it's like there's no fucking cameras, but you've got to curtsy in a perfect room. example. Yeah, yeah. It's like what. But it's a perfect, but it's a perfect example of viewing those kind of things Mm. as for public show. And like I say, like in a certain, um, I don't know if consumerist is the right word. Like Mm. um, viewing everything in almost market terms as if it's just a piece of advertising, as if the breeding is 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 a USP, a unique selling point. For what they're trying, what they're trying to, yes, what they're trying to sell. And it's like, no, they're not trying to sell anything. They're ruling. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't have that exact power, yeah, all of their psychological ticks, all of their old protocols are from that era when they ruled, they did things, mm. and held that power over people. Mm. Yeah, it was a perfect. It really was perfect. Yeah, the um, one of the thing which, like, when I was watching it, I didn't realize what the response would be. I knew that people would get like you know there'd be some people going, like the Megxit people would go more crazy. Um, I knew that there'd be some of the people who are like fully like Meghan and Harry are the best would be all kinds of yay. There would be a lot of, and there would be a lot of focus on the royal family. But I hadn't realised that because they they said that the British press are gross and racist, and they said that the royal family was like was terrible with their duty of care and and racist. Of course, the story... And also terrified of the press yeah. as well. But then, of course, the press, what the press would do would be then to focus entirely on that. You had, like, what's yeah. it, the, head, the bloke from the Society of Editors being like, yeah. how dare you imply that me, the head mill owner of the racism factory, was racist? It's... I have never seen a racially charged front headline <laughs> on any front page ever. <laughs> never Give ever. me an ex- Give me an example. Well, okay, give me another example. That's literally what he did in his interview. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so like, weirdly, like, obviously there's not going to be... There, I don't think it's possible for there to be an interview with a member of the royal family or someone close to the royal family that will literally end the royal family. But... no. The press are only they only ever really care about protecting themselves and making money. So if this keeps on going on, they are going to keep on throwing bombs at the royal family and complaining about like I don't think we're going to lose the royal family, but there's going to be a bigger discussion soon. I bet you about how much money they get. Yeah, there's a there's a base. That, that's like that's a victory that we can go. Yeah, I'm happy about that. I'm happy about them losing they've, some they've, they've, I mean, the thing is, like museums. They've always trodden the line, the royals and the press, have always trodden the line between the fact that they are not like other royal families. They've always had a plan. Yeah. There's a kind of cycle that goes on with the um, royals being very, very conservative until it comes out in public, and then something happens, Diana or the um, the divorce crisis or, or, or whatever. Um they always kind of hum along until one of those crises happens. And then 
there's some grand gesture, you know, like the Queen dealing with this fallout from Diana by coming out and saying, we're going to be more approachable and all that kind of stuff. And then over time, they kind of, the press calms down. They still continue, they get into their new role, their new baseline of, of what's expected. And it continues until the next crisis. And what they fear is that there will be an underlying tension that goes on for years and years and years. And then a bad thing happens. Mm. So, for instance, in the after the Second World War, there's kind of a thing of, well, you've still got the um, Edward VII, like the, the abdication crisis going on. Yeah. And in the background of that, you've then got like a reforming Labour government. Mm. So that is two crises piled on top of each other. So that's why they don't like to let those things go on. There's also has to be in the back of their minds, like whoever runs their shit. Um, there also has to be something in the back of their mind that at some point they would simply become the most important celebrities hmm. in a world of celebrities, which was, to be honest, the obvious evolutionary point of where the royals would get to. It's like yeah. they'll just become the top celebrities. They won't have that mystical kind of distance role. Because and, and you can see that like there's a little bit of been although they pushed William and Kate as kind of top celebs for a while, they went very quiet after they had kids. Mm. Which I think was a function of the fact that I mean, I think you said earlier that like um for fifty or so years there's only been one focal point for the succession, mm. Charles. Yeah. Right? He's been he's gonna be king at some point and it, it ensures the monarchy transmits on, but it's just him. The other siblings are either two Anne, <laughs> um, or they're much younger than Charles, so they kind of don't get treated in the same way. They can't; they weren't able to be um, acculturated to their roles at the same time as Charles. So he cuts a very solitary figure. With William and Harry, you have two people there. You have um, William, who's been, who's like I said, as he's as he's had kids. He's slowly withdrawn and they're kind of trying to do that same distancing effect to make him into the same kind of royal figure as Lizzie was, as Elizabeth was. Yeah. So uh, a, fi a figurehead, uh, you've got that extra level of like no one's ever going to overthrow Elizabeth. No one's no. ever going to knock Elizabeth off because she operates some kind of historical and cultural thing with the British mm. um, for better or for worse. I, I don't really care either way. But with William, they were trying to do that distancing and make him your surrogate older brother, your surrogate father, whatever position they're going to have in that, yeah. that they didn't do with Charles. But they also had a younger brother in Harry that was maybe a couple of years younger who could be the fun one. He could be the celeb monarch. Mm. And then what they did was, when some trouble came along, they immediately threw him under the bus. Yeah. You threw the public human face of your royal yeah. like dynamic under the bus. It's... And it, to the point that he made public statements about that. Yeah. It's so fucking stupid and it's going to lead to like, like the obvious answer is to do the same thing as they've always done, which is ultimately make William more approachable, make him more prominent. But of course that's going to be very difficult now because you're grooming him to be king in 20 years or yeah. whatever. Well, look, if maybe Andrew will have a show on um, that G that GB news channel. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, um, it is. It's completely understandable why they ran when they did, because it does seem like the well from an outsider, because we're all outsiders, that the royals did make a a cost benefit analysis of we can't defend everybody and we've got to defend Andrew at the moment. Yeah, and that 
if I was Meghan Markle and Harry, I would want to be away from that as well. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's the kind of thing about the dual crisis thing as well, because mm. it's like you've got Andrew there ticking away in the background. No <laughs> one's ever going to forget what he did <laughs> and what he's been accused of, especially seeing as the, I believe, the legal proceedings are still yep. going on. Yep. Um, so that's a slow burn crisis. And then you have something like that. And then, I don't know, there's a recession in two years' time and suddenly... Um, maybe the idea of this massive extended monarchy with constitutional powers mm. doesn't look so good. And frankly, like, yeah, you said at the beginning, there's some like lefties who, who will go full in on the, the guillotine thing and, and really like let some rage out. And I can definitely understand that mm-hmm. response, but actually a more interesting way of doing it would be what does this British society, if you weren't to change anything else, what does this society look like without the Royals, but nothing else changing? If we're going to make a single issue out of it, yeah, like I know, look, I know the monarchy realistically, it, like abolishing the monarchy is no good unless you have a ream of other redistributive measures and make a better society anyway. Mm. But if you're going to take that, if you're going to take that as a win, as a W, mm-hmm. maybe work out technocrat in a scientific, I guess, technocratic sense, technical sense, mm. what the constitution looks like, what British democracy looks like yeah. without the royal assent, without the queen. Mm. The story goes, we find out by the treasure in the grand line, there's no doubt. The pirate whose eye is on it, he'll sing, I'll be king of the pirates, I'm gonna be king. His name is Luffy, that's Monkey D. Luffy. So this week we wanted to talk about something, and actually uh, the news kind of cohered uh, with, with what we wanted to uh, wanted to talk about. Um so it was announced today that there would be um, an official feasibility study to assess the possibility of building a fixed link between Northern Ireland and Scotland. Isn't that a coin? <laughs> the, yeah, that is. That's the link. Um, so uh, apparently Sir Peter Hendy, a transport expert, was asked by the government to examine connections between different parts of the UK and, of course... Given Boris's obsession with building a an Irish sea crossing, whether by bridge or by tunnel, uh, this will be kind of part of its remit. Um, and I thought we'd talk about a few different things that Boris has been uh, involved in, kind of his big infrastructure projects, because they are a very defining feature of Johnsonism. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for, that, for what it's worth. It's one of the few things that he gets incredibly exercised about mm-hmm. that he really really promotes and really personally associates with himself yeah that seem to be uh like yeah they're they're, they're landmark things they're not tweaks mm. and when more importantly when they inevitably fail he is probably the most vicious <laughs> about um yeah it's um and he's <clears throat> it's yeah. understandable because like Especially, like, you know, everyone likes a bit of retail therapy to make them feel a bit better. That that warm glow when you've spent some money on something that you don't really need. Um, and that's what Boris is like, was like as a mayor with water cannons and what he's like as a prime minister with a track and trace system. <laughs> he's been, um, I mean, he's been talking about uh, a, a, an Irish Sea bridge or yeah. tunnel. Um, for a couple of years. He was even talking about it when he was um, Foreign Secretary in 2018 because, you know, what else are you going to talk about when you're in the middle of Brexit and you're Foreign Secretary other than intra-UK travel? (laughs) 
Um, so the idea of an Irish Sea crossing, it's not a new idea. Um, there were exploratory studies as far back as the 19th century. Um, even during World War One, um, one MP raised it and understandably wasn't really taken too seriously by a government in the middle of trench warfare. <laughs> um, in 1956, um, Montgomery Hyde, uh, the MP for Belfast North, raised the idea in Parliament. Um, one of his quotes saying, As far back as 1860, there was a proposal to construct a causeway. There was also a proposal to construct a bridge raised on large stepping stones and a proposal on the part of an engineer called James Maxton to construct a submarine tubular tunnel. His idea was that if any water got into a part of the tunnel, it would drive the train forward at a very rapid speed. (laughs) And shoot out! But he did not say what would happen if water came in at both ends. (laughs) I just really like the idea of it just shooting the train out. Like when you squeeze a bottle. I mean, he said this in a moment, that this guy, Montgomery Hyde, which also fantastic name, well yeah. done. Um, Especially for an Irish MP. He said it kind of mockingly, but it's also, I think it's important to remember when people get all misty-eyed over, like, big Victorian achievements, mm. it might be nice if they recognised that this wasn't so much civilizational vigour as it was basically a complete disregard for human life. Yeah. It's like, um, it's fine. The, the passengers on our um, Scotland to Ireland train will shoot out like the cork of a champagne <laughs> bottle. <laughs> The Irish Sea Crossing was even in the DUP's manifesto in 2015. Um, <laughs> wasn't in 2017 when they were they were kingmakers in 2017, I think, wasn't it? Um, but it actually started being taken kind of serious in the modern era um, in 2018 uh, when architect Alan Dunlop suggested that modern techniques could make a crossing, a bridge crossing, feasible. Mm. Um, as with modern examples like the Orisund Bridge between Sweden and Denmark and the Norwegian Coastal Highway. Uh, which is currently being built using bridges to cross the fjords. Yeah. Because they're currently uh, ferries going across and they're going to replace them all with bridges. Mm. But these are also very deep and they are finding technical ways to overcome that. Mm. Um, yeah, the great difficulty of the of this, of this an Irish Sea crossing is the depth. Yeah. Um, the Irish Sea is roughly twice as deep as the English Channel. And yeah. the um, across the proposed shortest route, which is from Stranra on the Scottish coast to Larne, which is north of Belfast. Um, the weather in the Irish Sea is also notoriously bad. Um, yeah. One source suggesting uh, that an Irish Sea bridge could be closed up to 100 days out of the year. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Sounds worthwhile. The, the proposed shortest route across the <laughs> Irish like Sea the is also... Like, like the Woolwich Ferry, as useful as the Woolwich Ferry. <laughs> hey, before the Blackwall Tunnel, that was the only way of getting across that part. It's never um, open. No. Um, th- that part of the Irish Sea is also complicated by the presence of Beaufort's Dyke, mm-hmm. which is a trench 50 kilometres long and about 250 metres deeper than the sea floor, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a problem in and of itself. It's also complicated by the fact that uh, the MUD have been dumping munitions into Beaufort's Dyke uh, since the Second World War. Uh, I apparently, love the there's British so much. It's like. What's that? That's a that's a big hole. That's a big hole. What do we do with a big hole? We we put things in the big hole. We always Apparently, bury things because we're natural pirates and we bury our treasures. Apparently there's well over a million tons of munitions in the trench, including sarin and mustard gas. Um, when a pipeline was being built there in 1995, unexploded bombs started washing up on the Scottish coast. And explosions from degraded munitions are apparently a relatively frequent occurrence. There's also some uncertainty given the national security implications 
over exactly how much radioactive material has been chucked into Beaufort's dike. Oh yeah, because they would they probably wouldn't have that written down like anywhere that some any old architect could see. Uh, it's also real close to the um, nuclear submarine base. Yeah. Um, that we mentioned in episode whatever, we did a nuclear episode that one Um, yeah it does, it comes up whenever there's a coastal project, like Mm. coming from the North Kent Riviera we heard quite a lot about this Like, you know, whenever there's an offshore project, it's like, well we've got to avoid that bit because there's like 600,000 tons of exploded World War 2 bombs there Yeah, I do think it is possible that the British subconsciously mined their island, (laughs) either to prevent people getting in or to prevent anyone getting out I think it's the second one (laughs) I think they say it's um, for the first one, but it's mainly for the second one. <laughs> um, then in March last year, the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack suggested that instead of a bridge, there could be a tunnel. Mm. Um, which, obviously, on that short route, doesn't really solve the problem of trying to get through Munitions Trench um, and the undersea World War One recreation experience that it comes <laughs> along with. Um, so to solve this problem, what is better than one tunnel across the Irish Sea? It would be three tunnels. What? Um, a proposal start, uh, would uh, be for there to be three tunnels, um, one from Ireland, uh, one starting at Stranra, one at Haitian near Lancaster, and one near Liverpool. Um, these would dodge Beaufort's trench by uh, Beaufort's dike by um, having an underground roundabout under the Isle of Man. Oh, like the Faroe Islands has. They have a roundabout. Yes. And that looks yep. really pretty. But it's, it's like just such a classic tunnel at Liverpool, rather than you know from the Welsh coast, because that would imp- that would mean they'd have to inc- like improve the roads in Wales. That's not going to happen. It's much better just to build these fucking tunnels. <laughs> I just like the I'd like the Sykes Peacock energy of drawing straight lines across across <laughs> a map to avoid a political difficulty. <laughs> you know, they're designing designing infrastructure the same way I play Minecraft. <laughs> really, really big ideas, just not very practicable. <laughs> I mean, the obvious question as well is, like, what, what, pro- like, the tunnel gets talked about in post-Brexit terms, hmm. Hmm. trademark, copy, patent pending, patent pending, Yeah, <laughs> a post-Brexit problem in that, obviously, Northern Ireland is now operating under a different uh, mm-hmm. regulatory system, under mm-hmm. the EU system, right? The border is in the Irish Sea. What, like, I haven't found a reasonable explanation yet, but they keep kind of hinting that it's like, oh, no, this will solve all of our problems with Northern Ireland and the EU. And it's like, what does... What does building a crossing change? Do do they think like, do they think a border on the Irish Sea is a, like around a regulatory framework is actually a wall that you can build <laughs> under or over? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it did just occur to me like the key thing of that is that yeah, it obviously is horseshit, but it sounds like if you got all your news from a newspaper, mm. it sounds like something that would solve all the problems of Northern <laughs> Ireland in Brexit. You know. Mm. <laughs> and I mean, you know, like, okay, big infrastructure, big bridge over to Ireland. I'm not necessarily against it in concept, but like, whenever Boris hypes something, hmm. you have to really start thinking about the emotional energies he's putting into it and what he's putting out there. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, obviously, as we said, he gets more enthusiastic about these massive infrastructure projects and more vicious about their failure than, than any other topic. Um, like, why are they so hot on it, on these, like, big. Um, projects being a specific solution to British malaise mm. because they're always talked about it's like ah this sets the standard for new Britain now we go into Brexit Britain this is going to be a solution to something yeah 
you know. Um, and Boris's particular um, particular <clears throat> response to that. I mean, the SDLP leader apparently today um, said that the idea was a fa- it was a fantasy. It was a like a, a smokescreen yeah. for the fact that you know Brexit, like the unionists can't quite agree on yeah. the fact that Brexit has cut Northern Ireland off from the rest of the UK. Yeah. Um, and uh, in response, like Johnson came out with his classic response, which is, "Oh no, it'll be a massive benefit," and like chastising this SDLP leader for his negativity. <laughs> You know, <laughs> well, everyone knows these large infrastructure projects are built with wishes and dreams and hope. Look, you may be negative now, but <laughs> when you are whizzing through that tunnel in your electric car, <laughs> hoping the battery lasts until you clear the nerve gas and get into the relative safety of landmine gulch, you will not be. You will eat those words. <laughs> um, How do you have to go? Am I going to get the beds? Um, it's, I, I think it's twice as deep as the Channel Tunnel, which isn't a, necessarily a problem. You can drill, but it requires yeah. a lot more like ventilation and things like that. Yeah. I think one source said it required about a 50 mile, a, a generated wind effect of 50 miles an hour at all times. Otherwise people, you know, would start suffocating. Well, then we'll sail for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Instead of electric cars, we could have little like land boat things like in, um, in Gorkamorka, Diganob. The um, humans that yeah. think they're orcs, they have little sailboats. <laughs> we'll have that. It'll be fine. But yeah, that, that line about negativity is very familiar to people mm. living under, who lived under Boris as London Mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a number of different projects um, that he really attached himself to. And we're going to talk about some of them now. Yeah. So like, some of these are, some, some of these are ideas that were brought to him because once it became quite obvious that the man had a particular fetish, then mm. up-and-coming agri- um, like architectural companies would come to him with their, with their prize pig. Um, my favourite one, which I'm sure I've mentioned before on the pod, but it's just, just the best, was the idea for the London Lido line, which is instead... Because we have a lot of canals in London that aren't really used for much other than the storage of discarded bikes and people living on them until the Olympics comes to town and makes them move. Um, What they were going to do is they were going to have like a special net that would be dropped into the canal to section off a whole section and filter the water so you could swim along the canal. Like the idea, they literally had the idea of... We were inspired by watching the Olympic triathlon, seeing people swimming in the serpentine. We we were picturing a kind of James Bond businessman swimming all the way to work in Canary Wharf. Um, so, I know what you're going to say. That's going to be cold. Like, re- really cold. And smelly. And <laughs> prone to animals. And also the Islington Tunnel, which is like a mile... I think of perf- it's a mile in perfect darkness, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, which they did have an idea for that of like filling it with essentially fairy lights. <laughs> but you'd have little little lidos with this weird netting in different pirates. Parts. Yeah, there would be pirates. <laughs> how be- do you avoid pirates? I don't. I don't know how you would avoid pirates. The fact that they'd be on canal boats going at like two mile an hour, or those um, <laughs> those hot tub boats. I'd be a pirate on one of those hot tub boats. So this little hot tub tugs as I'm like trying to catch businessmen with my net. 
But um, one of the other really good ideas about it was in the winter they'd put like a layer over the top of this this Lido line um, that would allow the water to freeze. So instead of swimming to work in the winter, you could ice skate to work. <laughs> because that's one of the things that the British are well known for, is how all of us know how to ice skate. Com- like, Look, competently we all enough have access. to ice skate for a couple of miles in darkness to work. Did they get this idea from a Coca-Cola Christmas advert? <laughs> it does feel like that. The pictures do. The pictures really look like that. There's a great picture of the Lido line next to London Zoo with some people lying around on sunbeds and people doing butterfly <laughs> for it to work. Um, but the thing with the canal is, it's not the only weird canal idea he had. Okay. Because. Um, there was a plan, and it's been blocked now. It got blocked in November. Um, where to say... And it's, this is a plan that's gone back fucking years. They've been talking about this. Is to build a couple of really large canals. One like one from Scotland and one from Wales. To get mm. the water that they have lots of to the southeast, Where we've used it all for our golf courses and our lawns. Um, and our terrible Victorian infrastructure. <laughs> mainly just letting it seep into the ground. Um... But so they were going to build these massive canals, and the idea goes back to um, 1942 when it was first proposed. Like in the war, it seems like you know they didn't have anything to do, so they were just coming up with all <laughs> kinds of wild ideas. But um, Alex Salmon was in favour of it because it was a way of selling water to the English in a independent yeah. Scotland. Um, but so the original plan, um, a canal would be built along the natural contour down the spine of England. Around three hundred foot level from the Scottish borders to the southeast, um, it would be gigantic, and it would just essentially be a massive water pipe harvesting all their water. Wasn't there? There was something about that coming up with um, HS two as well, wasn't there? There was. I, I can't remember whether it was just a pissed off um, <laughs> landscape architect or something mm. saying. We don't because we don't have a water grid. We don't have a national water grid. Yeah, um, all of it's local and based, I believe, based around main pipes. Yeah, from city to city. Um, wasn't the idea like why when we're doing all this work for HS two are we not laying kind of other types of infrastructure alongside it? Considering yeah. we're doing it already. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> but this would have been like real big. Like this would have taken up like you know like when they're taking up people's land because of um because of HS2, and like, oh, yeah. you're losing your garden, you're losing a big chunk of your farm. This would have been much larger for just hosing water down here. But that got, that was another one of his mad ideas that got... He got told no in November for that one. So I can only think that this was some kind of supervillain thing, like um, Lex Luthor, Gene Hackman in um, Superman 1, where they're just going to, like, build a massive river so that all of the land next... All the worthless agricultural land that, you know, you need for food is suddenly going to become this massively expensive riverfront property. be fantastic. Okay, so we've had the water, so now we come to the, one, of his other, one of his other great loves. Things in the sky. Um, oh, yeah. So, one of the ideas for dealing with um, London's cycling infrastructure problems is, well, you could listen to um, people who design this stuff um, and people who use this stuff and, like, shut down certain roads, expand cycling lanes, all that kind of stuff. Or you could take some of our disused rail lines and 
build some extra ones and just make everyone cycle in the sky. Um, there, I think that there's some kind of similar project to that in New York, I think, as yeah, well. Yeah, but it's not really that. It's like a little bit of elevated garden park where people mm. can hang about. It's not the same as, like, an awful lot of miles of elevated cycle path that you have to pay a toll for. Some people were expressing concern oh. about how steep the entrances and exits would be <laughs> because of the space concerns. Um, all the artist's impressions are just phenomenal, of just like happy, smiling businessmen literally flying through the sky. <laughs> um, it's another one that, yeah, you'd use your Oyster card to get on. Um, yeah, they... Fuck! Oh. But how? Why would you do that? Why would you make? Why would you fucking charge a toll? Well, yeah, because you you would have to. Because you know everything has to have a toll. That's a good point. Who's going to operate the? Um, you know, like our toll bridges are operated by French company. Yeah. Are they still operating it now after Brexit? Or have we finally paid for the Dartford crossing and no longer have to be shackled to it? I used the Dartford crossing last year, and yes, you do still have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, but now we've Brexited. The Dartford, the QE2 bridge was paid for about 15 fucking years ago, and they're still yeah, making you pay for it. Fucking nightmare. But yeah, so yeah, but also, yeah, and on. like, so, so presumably there would be some way for, I don't know, if you had a, a, a medical emergency on top of this ancient <laughs> Victorian bridge. structure, yeah. that you would be able to, you know, dodge the sky pirates and get the sky police to come <laughs> in and sky ambulance in to come and rescue you. I like the, um, the way, like, I tell you about the canal thing, and you're like, piracy! And then it's like, and the cycle path in the sky, sky pirates! Well, <laughs> well, we need to make money somehow. Um, so there's that one. And slowly, then we are slowly descending into banditry. We have to start thinking about these things now. Yeah. Um, but the best thing was, um, this was being talked about um, weeks after he was suspended above the zip line in his, the other project of his, the Emirates Airline. Which oh is, god, the cable one, car. This yeah. one, this one at least exists, and you can go on it and experience it. Whereas all, most of his other things, they come to nothing. They disappear like a fart in a wind. Um, but yeah, wasn't so, this one? Wasn't most of the planning? Was uh, was this entirely his baby, or was it um, uh, Ken? Didn't Ken I have think, something? I think to do it's. With the cable I think car? it started with Ken, but it's like it's it been talked about since the nineties because of um, it was going to be part of the stuff for the Millennium Dome. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the cable car, if you don't know It connects the Excel Centre With um, What's on the other side? The Greenwich Peninsula, what's there? The Millennium Dome It connects the Excel Centre and the yeah. Millennium Dome Two things that you never really need to go between <laughs> you, you you don't need it, it's, it's the solution for If you have a lot of traffic If you have just In fact it's a solution if you have just enough traffic of tourists mm. or basically businessmen, 200, 200 businessmen, basically. Yeah, if you've got 200 businessmen. To go between two places that you wouldn't be going to in the same day and that if you were going to either one of them, it would be your destination. Yeah. You wouldn't be flitting between the two. You yeah. wouldn't be going anywhere else. Mostly, for the most part, you wouldn't be going anywhere else around there mm. other than those places. The main thing I remember was when it opened, um, and they opened it for the Olympics, it wasn't long after that that it wasn't being used like pretty much at all. Like One of the only people that was using it regularly, because LBC used to send someone down there to 
check on it and see how it was doing and see who was using it. And I distinctly remember there being a guy who worked at like a Costa Coffee on one side and he lived in a flat literally on the other. <laughs> and it was like <laughs> just for him. <laughs> I've, then, I've been it's on that ridiculously expensive as well. I've been on that cable car once, right? Yeah. And it was so it really gives you the proper experience of you're going from one basically a desert like there's there's really nothing there this was during the daytime as well so there was nothing there you're going on it and then halfway through i really needed to piss i'd had a couple of pints i really needed to piss so i had to wait to get to the other side get off and find one of maybe three things that were open during the day yeah on the end so you you run into a subway and ask whether they have a toilet yeah you know it, it just really highlights like how Kind of how anti-human that area can be. Those those like develop those new developments. How sparse definitely. and how just oh, isolating and horrible they are. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's one of those other things that got. It was like in East London, we don't have many river crossings. Hmm. We've got after Tower Bridge. There's like not another bridge until Dartford. Yeah, I mean, there's like well, the, there's the Blackwall Tunnel. There's the Woolwich, the Woolwich Tunnel as well. Yeah, there's a Woolwich Tunnel and there's a Blackwall Tunnel. Um, and the Blackwall Tunnel... And, and the Blackwall Tunnel is old and prefer. horrible. Oh, it's driving. That's the other thing. It's driving. Yeah. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so, there are lots of issues with it. Um, like, it's owned by the... It's, I think it's, the UAE paid for a big chunk of it. Um, Hence the branding, yeah. Yeah. Because um, that actually got that actually got written into some of the later projects because the branding was so prominent on the Emirati um, cable mm. car. Um, there was a lot of stuff in design documents for some of the later foibles mm. that um, they wanted it to be. They wanted things to be subtly um, sponsored rather than overtly like it's the Emirates cable car. Also, when it came out, they um, their original contract forbade the use of any funds from Israel. Um, and it imposed restrictions on any competitor or any person who is a national of or who is registered, incorporated or established or whose principal place of business is in a country with which the UAE does not have um, does not at the date of the contract or at any relevant point during the term maintain diplomatic relations um, and it also cable forbade card, the mayor cable, cable or TFL from criticising the UAE royal families or the government um, <laughs> the clause regarding Israel was later removed but the clause that forbade them from criticising the UAE royal family stayed. I'm fine with them not using funds from Israel, but uh, it's, it's very interesting that they would assume that this one cable car... Cable car diplomacy. Yeah. It was gum, gumboat diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> it was cable car diplomacy. Just, yeah, and nobody uses it. It's very expensive. Um, I think the last ones, um, the figures for the year... Um, from... February 2019 to February 2020 was um, 23,000. That's how many people used it in a year. That's not many. Yeah. I remember going up in it, and you really can't see anything other than, you know, all the remaining small metal mm. and scrap workshops that the are across that area of East London? Um, they don't put anything there because I think it's in the crash zone for London City Airport. Yeah. So they don't put anything of quote unquote importance. Yeah. They're just uh, like the Tate and Lyle factory and a whole bunch of empty. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And obviously the other one is the um the other one that he did was, you know, buying that um buying that German water cannon that was never used <laughs> and then later sold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
It's less infrastructure, although I think some people would have liked it to become infrastructure. Definitely. Um, um, so, Boris's mayor also had um, some larger projects that he got involved in that he didn't, perhaps wasn't entirely yeah, in these control were little, of. These were little fancies that caught um, his eye. These weren't yeah, his, it, his like, main squeezes. I mean, that's the thing about... Uh, but, like, London mayor doesn't actually have that much power. Um, it's... It's kind of like a, it's not as powerful as like the equivalent offices in New York and Paris. Yeah. Um, it mostly because it's also kind of sandwiched between Westminster, which obviously geographically it's very close to, and the boroughs of London, which actually deal with you know the day to day, like council councils deal with the day to day stuff. Mm. Um, and so like it's interesting that you've had two before Sadiq Khan, you had two mayors who mainly ruled through publicity mm. because they're two, I mean, their two powers are planning and transport. Yeah. And that's what, uh, that's what they end up focusing on. So they're all about the tube. They're all about, you know, cable cars and that form of infrastructure. Yeah. Boris got very involved in, um, another form of transport infrastructure in that he was very associated with the so-called Boris Island, yeah. which, uh, to give, to give it his proposal, its true title would have been the London Britannia Airport. Um, <laughs> of course, he has to have Britannia yep. in it. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, it, it, the, uh, it's a Thames Estuary Airport. This is the one that was going to, where was it going to be? So, as with the Irish Sea Bridge, the idea of a Thames Estuary Airport in some place um, yeah. is not new. It's been rattling around since the 40s. Um, in the Seriously, 1970s, they were just sitting around during World War Two, going like, "Oh God, let's do something," because I can't. I'm not going to go to war. <laughs> in the 1970s, when the idea of a Heathrow replacement was floated, um, a commission then recommended that a new airport be built at Cublington, which is a village in Buckinghamshire, many miles outside the M25. But of course, this village, which had all the trappings of like the picturesque, wealthy Middle England rural idyll, was able to kind of use this its picturesque qualities it's like ideological englishness Mm. um and interestingly for the first time pair that with a kind of environmental concerns about building a new airport yeah um they were able to mount a successful resistance to the proposal Mm -hmm. and they were able to get the new uh the proposed new airport site moved to maplin sands off uh foulness in essex um, that project in particular got quite far. It got as far as building kind of preparatory earthworks in in the in the marshes. So in they the made sands. a mud pile. Um, yeah, apparently there is still a sand dune off the coast, which was the only remnant of the project. <laughs> um, and that's always been the theme with a the new London airport. You know, the idea of putting it in the leafier areas around the capital has always been nixed. Um, and so they're driven into the kind of narrower corners, which includes the Thames Estuary places that wouldn't have the same kind of, I guess, cultural and ideological clout. Hmm. Um, London's airports are well known for not being good, capital Hmm. letter, good, in a location sense. Um, Heathrow apparently is about the worst airport imaginable, as the prevailing winds mean that planes have to fly in over the the middle of the city centre, which is an experience I lived through firsthand when I lived in Hounslow. Um, But Gatwick, Stansted and Heathrow are all also in built-up areas, Mm. so they don't have as much area to expand existing capacity. Um, Various sites have been proposed for a Thames Estuary Airport, um, including the aforementioned Maplin Sands, um, they've proposed Cliff, the Isle of Grain, and even the Isle of Sheppey at one point. 
When Boris became mayor in 2008, there were a number of columns, especially in the Times, advocating the idea of a Thames Estuary airport. Uh, Kit Malthouse, the deputy mayor, penned a Times column favouring an artificial island in the middle of the estuary a bit earlier in 2007. A lot of this was uh, spurred on by the fact that Heathrow Terminal 5 had just opened to chaotic scenes with bags going missing, IT problems and flight cancellations. Um, Johnson's favoured Boris Island plan was for an airport called London Britannia at Shivering Sands near Whitstable. But then they decided not to build it in a Dungeons and Dragons location <laughs> and built it. decided to uh, propose building it off, off the Isle of Sheppey instead. There would be six runways. That's right, six. We're um, currently talking about a third runway at Heathrow and he wanted to build a six-runway airport. Bearing in mind, like, um, like, we've got the super port up the Thames. So, you know, there's, you see big boats coming up around there a lot more now. Yeah. So like, um, no, like all these boats coming down there. Then you've got these six runways. Ah, well, the interesting thing is as well, this plan, <laughs> um, they proposed that this floating airport would also have a goods dock. Oh, okay. So that goods could be shipped to Stamford La Hope. What's this pollu- <laughs> so, What's all this pollution going to do to um to the scorpions on the Isle of Sheppey? Rad it will only. I mean, the problem is if you're going to name a place Shivering Sands, you've got to expect some <laughs> mutated cobalt. <laughs> mutated kobolds and questing paladins. <laughs> there are no questing... Actually, no. I was about to say there are no questing paladins around around that part of Ken, but no, there are a lot of people who dress up in EDL stuff <laughs> looking for something to do. <laughs> there are, If anything, there are way too many crusaders. <laughs> yeah. Um, Boris's favourite scheme was um, produced... was uh, produced by... Uh, uh, was produced by an organisation called Testrad, which is the Thames Estuary Research and Development. Um, and they produced a brochure for their um, proposed nice. Sheppey site. Uh, they described Sheppey as unencumbered blue-greenfield site, blue-slash-greenfield site. Okay. What's a blue-field um, site? C. <laughs> <laughs> C! Okay. Because um, supposedly the benefits of an offshore airport would be that uh, because it was much further away, there wouldn't be as much problem with noise. Local communities wouldn't be as bothered by living around an airport. To be fair, the people um, of the Isle of Sheppey aren't going to complain because how they they've actually no no I am wrong. I was about to say they've only got one bridge to get off to like run to somewhere to complain, but they've got two bridges now. Well, also if you have an airport, they it would require another bridge to be built. Genuinely, that's part oh, yeah, of the sure. thing. Cause you'd have to build high-speed rail. That's what airports need now. Yeah. Um, the brochure produced by Testrad described uh, the Thames Estuary is a resonant and magisterial place. The airport relocation will regenerate <laughs> will regenerate the historical origin of UK trading and exchange with the world. That's beautiful. Sorry, like, I love estuaries it, being referred to as that. As as estuary boys. Yeah. Like it's, that isn't a word I'd use. I just like the idea that, of course, over over time, it's it, the the wording around all these things has changed. So rather than it being opening Britain to a global blah blah blah, like it was in New Labour times, now every proposal has to like echo the thing that we were already good at and we were known for. Yeah, you know, I mean, we made fun of that uh, the Cameron era pivot to the our island story kind mm. of notion of history but it is just testament to the fact that if you keep battering that away eventually it's all anyone will talk in terms of definitely um additionally in this brochure they said that um obviously heathrow would have to close um to make this new airport commercially viable via the 
would make to make it commercially viable, okay. and that they would recycle Heathrow as a new London borough. Oh. Uh, this Britannia Airport. <laughs> so interesting. Like the idea is like, okay, it's like Hounslow's got a lot of concrete. What's the other place that's like between Hounslow and Heathrow? It's got like Hatton Cross. Yeah, that place as yeah. well. A lot of concrete. It's like you like concrete, you like a bit more concrete. How about an entire borough that has all literally been concreted over and poisoned with petrol fumes for the last thirty years? Well, if you think about the total offer they're offering, it's like, look, another housing estate. Yeah, yeah. Look, we can do this again. Yeah. Um, the Britannia Airport would contain conferencing facilities, museum outposts, <laughs> um, sleeping pods. Okay. And shopping. <laughs> shopping. Um, all I see in this PDF as you leaf through is a lot of maps with big arrows driving directly through Medway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as with the Irish Sea Crossing, uh, the scheme was complicated by the fact that the SS Richard Montgomery, a World War II US cargo ship with 1,400 tons of explosives on board, was sunk about a mile and a half from Sheerness. So it would be right in the middle of this uh, area and all of its infrastructure. Um there was actually a rival scheme to uh, the Britannia idea, which was explored in more depth and was submitted by uh, Norman Foster, who's the architect who redesigned Wembley Stadium. Okay. The Foster proposal would be situated a few miles west of the uh, Testrad site at the easternmost point of the Hoo Peninsula. Okay. Um, and would incorporate a new Thames barrier crossing and a £20 billion four-track high-speed orbital passenger and freight railway around London as well as new roads to serve an, uh, a four-runway airport. Um, in April 2012, uh, Richard Deakin, the chief executive of NATS, which is the National Air Traffic Service, hmm. said that the architects of the Thames Hub Airport, none of the architects of the proposed designs of the Thames Hub Airports, hmm. had contacted them beforehand to discuss its feasibility. And that the Thames Hub, the proposal for the, uh, an airport in the Thames Estuary was difficult to imagine because it was directly under the convergence of major arrival and departure flights for four of London's five airports. <laughs> um, they also raised the issue of the well-documented risk of strikes um, from thousands of birds found in the wetlands, yep. and the proximity of Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport would also affect air traffic patterns and force aircraft into more into more convoluted flight paths. <laughs> Like but surely, the um, bird striking, that would only happen for like a year or two, and then the birds are gone. Aha! Well, interestingly, Those the airport commission didn't... environmentalists will keep on breeding the birds. The airport commission did not, uh, roughly, uh, did not agree with uh, <laughs> the idea that the birds would move on. Um, both of these estuary proposals were ruled out as unfeasible in 2014 by the airport commission. Yeah. They actually produced a separate report... Um, before their main recommendation about what to do with British uh, British airports, yeah, um, how to solve a problem like Heathrow, they actually uh, introduce a separate report to dispel the idea of a, a Thames Hub airport. In their this report, they mentioned their objections to an airport in the Thames estuary as follows: um, they said there would be an impact on protected habitats. Um, there were legal barriers to actually moving the birds and that to provide new habitats for all of these species would mean re-engineering the local sites and species on an unprecedented scale. Um, they also uh, addressed the idea that the infrastructure would be... And, and They also addressed the fact of closing Heathrow. Obviously, they would have to close Heathrow to make the airport commercially viable. Um, and they 
said that obviously while an airport would provide a boost to estuary infrastructure, um, the decline of Heathrow infrastructure would be uh, pretty damaging. Um, like that area of West London mm. from Brentford to Hounslow, like Slough and Ealing, all those areas, they're a lot poorer than people think just because West London as a whole doesn't have really have that reputation as a poor area. Like Hounslow in particular is in the top 20 highest child poverty rates in the country. Mm. Um, so like despite the amount of time that it would take for you to turn Heathrow into a, a, a housing estate, a luxury, luxury flats, yeah. which also are not guaranteed to benefit the actual local population as all of these things, as, as yeah. a lot of these schemes never do. Um, the opening of this Thames Estuary airport would also probably impact London City and um, Stansted airports yeah. in, a, in a similar way. Yeah. Um, they also raised the fact that while the Thames Estuary would be um, uh, would be a better location for the planes, it actually would be a less convenient location for passengers. Um, although Heathrow's in a bad location for planes, yeah, it's actually pretty good for getting in from the rest of the country yeah. because I mean you you can get in all the way from the west, like you can get in from the north without necessarily having to go in into London. Yeah, um, putting it in the estuary means a load more infrastructure hemmed in by marshland, river, housing, that kind of thing. Um, and I mean that part of the southeast it's already a commuter line and has a fairly reasonable kind of train line and motorway but not to the level a major air hub would need Yeah. Um, also bear in mind that uh, at the time that this Thames Estuary airport was being floated Crossrail was just being approved by Parliament and its route goes north of the estuary Mm. in an entirely different side of the river to where the rail infrastructure would need to be so a lot of the uh, plans for these airports involved building extra bits to Crossrail to go south of the river. Yeah. Um, they also raised objections uh, to the airport on the ground that the liquid natural gas storage facility on the Isle of Grain um, would have to be relocated. That's the largest natural gas storage facility in Europe. Um, <laughs> Just move it. And the idea of it being in the estuary and planes being able to take off and land day and night, um, 24 hours, was actually kind of overstated. Um, most airports that uh, are allowed to operate 24 hours don't really use it. You know, it's not very popular or in demand. Um, and there's also the question of like how useful one single new mega airport would be. Yeah. You know, even without COVID, um, the uh, National Air Traffic Control Service have long suggested there's an upper ceiling of about 800,000 flights a year okay. just based on, on airspace. And that's aside from carbon reduction, environmental concerns, yeah. anything like that. There just simply isn't the space in the air to land that many that many planes. Um, also, one new mega airport makes is less flexible in response to changes in aircraft. So, for instance, you know, if people stop flying by planes because of, oh, I don't know, a 75% drop in in like international travel over a year you know that might be a a, a thing um and their final objection was the costs um they estimated that the costs for the foster scheme um which remember was a more modest proposal than boris's um six runway britannia scheme costs for the foster scheme were estimated at 67 to 88 billion pounds for a three one runway airport and 97 to 120 billion pounds for a four runway airport which would include like access infrastructure, train lines, motorways, stuff like that. Compare that to the education budget for the entire UK for the last year was 103 billion, <laughs> which is the second largest. I think health was 160. <laughs> so it would be 
80% of the health budget. <laughs> to massively negatively affect the health of everyone in the southeast. <laughs> um yeah, so their, uh, their, the introduction to their report actually anticipated Boris's reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, There will be those who argue that we have missed a great opportunity for a great leap forward, and that the Commission lacks ambition and imagination. And you know what? Yes, Boris did react to that ruling <laughs> in exactly that fashion. Uh, he said the decision not to proceed with a Thames Estuary airport was myopic, and that our Victorian forefathers would be turning in their graves... <laughs> To look at how completely hopeless and inspissated they were, uh, whatever. Um, he, Boris blamed distinguished formal civil, former civil servants for scotching the plan, <laughs> which I guess you could read as prophetic for the populist turn yeah. he would take later for the Brexit kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Um, he said it was all a gigantic smokescreen for a U-turn on Heathrow. Um, <laughs> and oh yeah, because he was promising to lie on the runway, wasn't he? <laughs> yep. And he said he would oppose any future expansion of Heathrow. Um, and he uh, mainly he kind of said that it was a real problem with um, planes landing over central London and that uh, it was a real problem that one of the world's major airports had planes landing over, quote, West London suburbs. Um, which, you know, seems a little rich considering you are asking for North Kent to take on this airport, even though it's in the middle of the river. Yeah, you're asking for North Kent to take on all the infrastructure surrounding airports, yep. while because like the airport would be big, but it wouldn't have a bunch of long stay car parks. It wouldn't have enormous train stations able to kind of take people across to this island in the middle of the of the river. Yeah, it's not like there would be no impact. There would be jobs, but it would be airport jobs. Yeah, no one likes living around an airport. No. See, you know, like Newark, the the like the yeah. the reputation Newark has in America. Yeah. Um, yeah, so obviously he had, he seemed to be aware that it was likely that his Thames Estuary idea would be shot down. Um, earlier in 2012, he'd actually set, tried to set up a rival inquiry to the camera, to the governments, uh, <laughs> excluding expanding Heathrow in favour of the estuary idea. <laughs> um, the scheme seemed to be dead after this point, but with kind of the Johnson ascendancy of the last year, um, of course, at some point in the last year, someone's tried to bat for it again. Yeah. Um, Mary Dajewski in The Spectator in February, this February um, suggested a revival of the Estuary Airport idea, saying a rare upside of the pandemic for those of us regularly woken up at 4am by the first flights <laughs> into Heathrow being stacked above central London, above central London, <laughs> has been that these pre-dawn's arrivals have been fewer and further between. Can I just say, as someone who, as I said, lived in Hounslow, a very personal fuck you yeah. to the idea that Heathrow is as disruptive to central London as it is to the areas actually around the airport. Try massive aircraft sounds every 30 seconds from 9am to 8pm every single day. Yes. I, like, I got used horrible. to it. it I got used to it. It was fine. But fuck you if you think, live. oh no, my fucking Mayfair flat. Oh, it's fucking horrible. I just love the idea of like, oh no, we can no longer deal with this. This is pr- like listening to how quiet it is now. I want it to go on like this forever. So, Medway Towns, I know you've had a shit run of it recently, but <laughs> you like planes? You there, Sheppy, I know what you want. You want jobs. Well, I can give you an opportunity to work at a duty-free stand on an island. She continues... Uh... With her, her advocacy for the airport is basically based around the national advertisement that the point of entry for the country, uh, what it says about the country. Okay. 
Um, airports say something about where you have arrived. Many countries, especially in Asia, know this. The airports of Seoul and Singapore are models of style and efficiency. Hong Kong's new airport was conceived in part as a statement of confidence in the territory's future in the wake of the killings at Beijing's Tiananmen Square. How did that one go, by the way? Hmm. <laughs> was the statement, you know, we all win every time, no matter how many people we have to kill. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, and like, it's... That's funny, though, the, um, the, you know, you've got a, it's all about the statement that an airport makes as you come into a country. Because, like, yeah. I, I've, like... I've changed at Hong Kong Airport. Mainly, I was just terrified because landing at Hong Kong is is quite scary. Um, it's like a weird curve that they do. That I was not ready for. Um, but like the last country I went to was Canada and the um, and Calgary Airport. That properly gave me a really good introduction to Canada. But it wasn't because it was like all glitzy and fancy. It was because it was kind of run down. There were a bunch of people dressed as Mount- Mounties, and there was a Tim Hortons, which is possibly one of the best not Greg's that exist in the world. <laughs> and so you don't need, like, so much fantasies. You just need a couple of people dressed as beefy as in a Greg's, and that would be enough. Yeah. I mean, she says, like, a good airport is an asset, an unattractive or dysfunctional airport can blight a country's reputation faster than almost anything else. Um, a splendid new London hub airport welcoming the world's travellers to the capital and beyond. How better to show that post-Brexit, post-pandemic, the UK is in business. Hmm. Well, Prime Minister, the kind just of people, get them done. The kind of people that she talks to are like, they've just flown into Heathrow and they're like, oh no, my painting got lost at the airport. Do you know what I mean? They're that kind of person. It's it's just the fact of like, well, okay, but it doesn't, like, why does it have to be in the Thames Estuary? Why not go yeah. back to build it in Oxfordshire or Berkshire? Yeah. You know, I don't know, maybe near the massive fucking high-speed rail line you just spent £40 billion on. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, it's like it's going to have to be outside the m25 anyway so you've got a lot of area and a lot more land yeah. than building it out in the middle of the sea i just it's yeah yeah it's the notion of built of like conquering nature yeah that's 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 i'm sure that's where that a big is part the, of it comes comes from that is an incredibly important thing in a larger sense that's an incredibly important thing um it seems like a lot i mean obviously Capitalist civilization was kind of built on the idea that you were conquering nature, mm. that because you could conquer scarcity, you could conquer kind of the natural condition. Yeah. Um, but these seem to definitely overtly try it with their largeness and their like audacity. The British ideas of what those things, can, those projects can be, are definitely geared towards saying, look, we've still got it. Yeah. We can still slaughter our entire animal population or our. our Population of marsh birds just as well as we used to. Just, I just like Britannia rules the waves, but the waves is like the gentle rippling of a canal. So we've seen obviously the Britannia airport as Boris thinking sky high. Um, he was also associated with another scheme that was a little more down to earth, but still wild and maybe illustrates the kind of terrestrial. <laughs> aspects of boris johnson a lot more like the secular rather than his big vision stuff more the secular reality of what johnsonism actually is yeah i'm talking of course about the garden bridge Mm -hmm. um the idea of a garden bridge was supposedly first conceived by um johanna lumley and uh, a designer called thomas heatherwick um johanna lumley has apparently known boris johnson since he was four okay and so uh, she was the one, apparently, who sold the idea to, to Boris. Um, and while he was London mayor, he promised that the project would be kick-started with public money, 
but it would be entirely, eventually be entirely privately funded. Mm-hmm. Joanna Lumley called the idea of the Garden Bridge a tiara for the Thames. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, Everyone knows, everyone's got a tiara. Um, where was it going to be? Because this, like, I remember the when they first announced this, this is another one of my, like, my pet peeves of no ways of crossing the river other than, like, tunnels between, like, Tower and, um, Dartford. Yeah. I mean, it would be between, um, Waterloo and Blackfriars Bridges. Somewhere <laughs> yeah, so, along like, there. right in the middle. So where the, we've already the got bank, a thousand bridges. Literally yeah. a thousand bridges. Oh, yeah, because I remember, like, at the time it was like well this doesn't seem i I lived in london i started living in london i think by then um but the news stories came out about a rate of one a week slowly unraveling Hmm. because it sounded pointless but like it sounded like empty and shallow but like basically a pretty thing yeah like a pretty a pretty bauble but as it went on it became more and more sinister yeah um like the costs obviously the costs started to spiral that's what a lot of people were reporting on yeah um and there was like this resistance to questions about its budget. Anytime you asked Boris, Boris was hauled into the Greater London Assembly a lot of times and just ended up refusing to answer questions about oh, it. Oh, so good. Like, the funding was incredibly murky. Mayor Boris was so... It was, that was just him constantly. Like in Parliament, he has to answer questions. He does deflect most of them. But Mayor mm. Boris was just like a pissy brat. Whenever he was like being lectured and, asked, and people were demanding answers, he'd be just like, No! Kind of great. As well as the funding, it came to light light that um, this would be, because it would be privately funded, Mm. it would be technically a private space. So it would have a bunch of um, bylaws. Um, Some of these bylaws included no exercise other than jogging, no playing a musical instrument, no alcohol, no, quote, gatherings of any kind. (laughs) Uh, no giving speeches, no scattering ashes, no releasing balloons or flying kites. <laughs> um, and apparently, you know, the, apparently the great fear of this uh, this bridge trust seemed to be that the bridge would immediately be occupied by 17th century political cartoons. <laughs> we can't just open it to everybody because otherwise it will become Hogarth's Gin Lane. Um, in addition, uh, visitors to the bridge would have their mobile phone signals tracked and staff called, quote, visitor hosts, would have the power to take people's names and addresses, issue fines, and to confiscate banned items. Sounds like an (laughs) Extinction Rebellion protest. (laughs) Um, So, the tender for this garden bridge idea went out to three design companies in February 2013. Mm -hmm. The design document that went out, oddly, did not actually mention a garden bridge instead requesting design advice to help progress ideas for a new footbridge across the thames okay um it went out to three companies uh two of the companies that were invited to bid um only had 12 days to submit proposals for the bridge later it emerged that the third company uh heatherwick studios headed Hmm. by thomas heatherwick Hmm. had been working on the proposal their proposal for five months uh Heatherwick Studios had been involved in the design of the Olympic Cauldron in 2012, and Olympic another famous Boris, uh, the flame that contains the flame. Oh yeah. Um, they'd also been involved in another Boris scheme, the design of the Route Master buses. Oh, oh those. Um, I hate those. And it later and it later emerged that Johnson had flown to San Francisco with Thomas Heatherwick 
on £10,000 of taxpayer money to get Apple to sponsor the scheme in early February 2013 before the tender had gone out, before the Garden Bridge scheme had even been approved. <laughs> Just going to cross this Garden Bridge with your Motorola and one of the hosts grabs it and stamps on it. This is Apple Town. <laughs> um, Heatherwick's estimate, estimate for its day rate during the design process, because that's what you do, you submit yeah. like how much you're going to spend per day and stuff like that, their day rate came to £173,000, as opposed to the other two companies, which came in at a much more reasonable 15000 and 49000 a day. Yeah. Um, it was... Basically, it was a rigged process, yeah. um, which only came to light at the independent review conducted at the end of the whole debacle. Um, Heatherwick Studios was eventually awarded the contract for the design of the Garden Bridge, and they were handed £2.7 million. Pounds. Uh, there was also the matter of the engineering contract. Uh, that was awarded to a company called Arup. Uh, shortly afterwards, TfL's director of planning, Richard DeCarney, left for a job at, of course, Arup. More importantly, during... Uh, situ- during the period where he was still working for TFL as director of planning, he continued to make decisions relating to the project during his notice period. Usually they take gardening leave or something to yeah. put some space between it. He was still working for TFL while he was signing for the people who he was signing checks for. Nice. Um, Arup eventually received more than £13 million from the project. All right. Um, the Garden Bridge was actually, uh, like the whole governance process was controlled by a trust. Um, so the people who were signing the contracts and things like that. Um, they actually signed the contract with Arup, the engineering contract, before they had satisfied planning consents or even secured the land on the South Bank that the bridge would actually be built on. The rush was allegedly to avoid clashing with the Thames Tideway Tunnel, which was that new massive sewer to help filter oh, out yeah, sewage the, and the super sewer, yeah. from the river. Something actually fucking useful. Um Apparently, they signed the engineering contract at the urging of the Garden Bridge Trust's sole founding member, one Thomas Heatherwick, <laughs> who was the also the person who selected the chair and the uh, other <laughs> members of the trust. Okay. <sighs> when asked about Heatherwick's conflict of interest, Boris Johnson stated in a GLA committee that critics were, quote, jealous of Heatherwick for only being a designer and not an architect. <laughs> um, or- <laughs> Boris assisted the trust in other ways by signing a mayoral directive which watered down the conditions that the project had to meet to receive public money. Um, he wasn't actually the only one in this, in this case. David Cameron also intervened to extend public money to the Garden Bridge Trust. And George Osborne also committed £30 million of public money to the project, which is very odd, considering that the Evening Standard was so positive about the project after George Osborne stopped being Chancellor. Weird. Um, the project was officially cancelled on 14th of August 2017. Its estimated cost £43 million for nothing. <laughs> According to the Garden Bridge Trust's accounts, £161,000 was spent on their website and £400,000 was spent on a fundraising event. Seriously, I know I've said this before, but where do we get in on this? <laughs> like, this is literally the redistribution solution all socialists have been looking for. Your social democracy is all very well and good, but if you thought about social grifting... <laughs> I call it Robin Hood grifting. And just bear in mind, this whole thing, a pure toy. Yeah. At one point, it was extended. The idea was extended to being able to, to for, for corporations to be able to hire the yeah. Garden Bridge for events. Because you know, money have... that 
they were going to have that the bridge was going to be shut um, like before six in the morning and after like seven at night as well. Yeah. TFL money, because that's essentially where this money came from. It came from TFL. Um, money that TFL money that should have been used to, I don't know, ease congestion or I don't know, cover a massive reduction of fares in the event of some event that made passenger numbers drop precipitously. Or make um, it all so that you money, can swim in the canal. <laughs> all that money was instead directed to something that was, for all intents and purposes, a private bridge at a location which didn't need one, which we paid for, that could be monitored and scrutinised to see if we were worthy of the privilege of existing on it, <laughs> unless of some course, of course, some investment firm paid to drink champagne and do coke off it. <laughs> just I can't think of anything more emblematic of that, just London, there is... in, that per- in that period and this, I guess. It's... It's such an odd place for like a pedestrian bridge as well, because like when we drink around that when we used to in the before times, um, be able to drink in town, um, there's like Hungerford Bridge, and then there's Waterloo, and then there's Blackfriars, and then there's London Bridge, and they're all like within ten minute walk of each other. They're all pedestrian bridges as well. They're all easily walkable. It's not like yeah. They're rail bridges or, you know, the, the Blackwall Tunnel is just is, is for cars only, yeah. realistically. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, like, what... These are all, out, like, just outlandish, outrageous projects, as you say, meant to tilt against nature itself. Yeah. What, what do they mean? Why is it so then? Because, like, big infrastructure isn't bad in and of itself. Like, the 2019 yeah. Corbyn Manifesto contained no few number of large infrastructure projects. Yeah. I like it. We need it. We need things to be able to use. Yeah. Um, but I don't think the two approaches to infrastructure of Boris and Corbynism and New Labour, to be fair, is the yeah. other example. I don't think they're they're remotely similar. Like New Labour did not do the same thing as this for all the kind of comparisons of the of the of their record in office. Yeah. Um when New Labour Commission Yeah, when New Labour Commission projects, the enemy, like the thing that these projects were targeting was like old habits, old Britain. It was um, meant to be some kind of cultural showcase that was, yeah, meant to demonstrate to the world that Britain was modern and all that jazz. But it was also this idea that they were moving Britain out of the shadow of industrialization and into modernity or or post-modernity, probably more accurately. Um, It's almost as if their monuments, kind of the dome and HS1, they're more pointed at the British population. Hmm. You know, they're trying to tell the British population something about themselves. Yeah. Um, and like most of their infrastructure projects were nowhere near as big. I mean, they were like, it's like a tram to a bowling alley. It was like the main, yeah. you know, a Barrett's housing estate. That was their contribution to infrastructure. And, you know, pros and cons, obviously. But yeah. it was it was targeted at that kind of thing. Um, like the key things that all these Boris projects have in common, they're all outlandishly large. Hmm. They're mostly travel related. Yeah. Um, and their justification is based on kind of on the surface at least, on how Britain looks to the rest of the world. Yeah. They're not really intended for us, yeah. but they are challenging us. So we're supposed to feel this kind of very distant pride at them. Yeah. And once we're they're built, we're supposed to enjoy the look of them, if yeah. not the actual use of them. Yeah. Um and I think it's like that element of them, the fact that they are unnecessary, is quite key to them. Like it's an airport, a bridge that is florid and, and overdeveloped, and it's for decoration. It's aimed at tourists. Mm. A tunnel that is audacious, like an airport that is difficult by design. It's mm. supposed to be 
the process of building the airport says as much about the government and the state and the people who who built it as it does the use of it. Yeah. Um, quite a lot of these schemes were very rarely kind of discussed in terms of the value to public architecture. What's discussed is their bigness, their audacity, the, all the extras that come along with them. You know, they're big and complicated beyond their basic use case. It can't just be a bridge. It can't just be a tunnel. It has to be like a hovering, floating bridge made of gold with a visitor centre and shopping opportunities, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. When Johnsonism commissions something, the projects have this extra component of being stunning and visionary. And realistically, this means, as we said, conquering and proving Britain's mastery over nature, over space, Mm. um, over science itself, over like the naysayers, over human nature itself, over human criticality, cynicism, that kind of thing. Um, And they're always described as kind of outrageous statements of intent for post-Brexit Britain. And as the emotional flows that now govern post-Brexit Britain... As they surge and froth, that means if you supported Brexit, you're likely to support these things. I've seen a lot of people who are like Brexiters, classic Brexiters. They just support the airport because that's what Boris wants. Yeah, That's what they think will will be the big thing that makes them a civilization again. Yeah. On the other end, you've got um, people who didn't support Brexit who think that they're a huge waste of time and money and the idea of any extra kind of infrastructure, e.g. HS2, is a huge waste of time because it's something that, like, a Tory government wants, which, you know, I don't necessarily agree with. But what's important is these, the, all these things have this emotional and ideological element to them. Hmm. They're not everyday. They're not normal. They're special. They're abundant. They're exuberant. Hmm. And it adds to the sense that Boris is taking on this kind of monarchical, magisterial role. He's less than a politician. He's less a politician, less even a manager. And he's more like a, a cheerleader or a cultural icon, yeah. like, a, like a royal, in a yeah. way. Um, and I've seen Johnsonism as a style described as pre-democratic. And to understand why he keeps attaching himself to these massive, idiotic projects, I think you actually kind of have to end up asking yourself, what was the point of Versailles? Yeah, you know why? Why are these big things so important to kings and princes and Boris? I think when a project becomes associated with a single person, it does have an ego function. It's to make Boris seem big, of course, but it also has a political signalling function. It tells people on the outside, "I am the kind of guy who will push at these things, and I will get them done." Look at me, Deloitte or Balfour Beatty or Goldman Sachs or whoever it is. Yeah. Um, they're appealing to global capital to kind of bring them in and and kind of use them for their purposes. Because also the other group this kind of these kind of big projects appeal to are those increasingly influential types of right wingers. Um, those kind of that odd fusion in modern conservatism that's like half elite populists, half disappointed liberals, half defensive civilization, Western civilization Gen Xers. Yeah. You know, like the, the Roger Scruton people, the, yeah. the, the traditional architecture people. Mm. All these people, they want big things because they want cathedrals. They want pyramids. They want hanging gardens of Babylon. Yeah. And they want this because of these kind of really weird concerns with like civilizational decline and they want posterity they want to you know show posterity a thing or two and they want to achieve greatness again yeah it's um, the, the, it's the parks of wreck thing with the holding the doll with would a depressed man make this but it's an airport built on top of a 
uh, unexploded World War Two bombs with would a nation in decline build this six runway airport in the in the sea? Kind of like that all right thing about um, you know white people building everything and white people somehow not being worthy of the mantle of being white anymore. Yeah, like that's where the racial element comes in. The kind of you know these buildings need to be big and impressive because they need to inspire the population to mm. be worthy bearers of being british of the british mantle yeah it has to be inspired you know um and it's actually very bannon like in the end like mm. steve bannon um like feigning interests in the economic concerns of post-industrial populaces to wage civilizational war you don't get a local railway but you get a massive airport that you will use visit once in your life yeah that you'll you know, never be able to afford to fly from. Populism that actually only benefits international business travellers at the expense of local areas. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. absolutely kind of that perfectly reflects those contradictions. Um, you know, why out of any of the billions of pounds that have been earmarked for these various Boris projects, how can they not be spent on metro systems for city outside London, Glasgow, Liverpool, or Newcastle? Yeah. They're the only cities that have a metro system. Yeah. None of the others have any. And, you know, it's th that kind of focus on symbolism, and, like gilded symbolism, is why, like, you know, I saw it again floated recently. They're talking about having more metro mayors. They're yeah. talking about putting in more political figureheads to make people feel better about their local areas, as opposed to, I don't know, giving them things that they actually need and use. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's as if the you know, as if mayors are the solution to something somehow. Yeah. You know? And it's all about, yeah, that newness and greatness and not about filling in the holes in what actually exists. There is one final dimension I just want to talk about briefly, um, the neoliberal dimension, right? Neoliberalism or whatever they're calling this type of existing capitalism now is quite often thought of as like it's commonly referred to as like, oh, it's a smaller role for the state, it's less spending. But in reality, as we've discussed before, it's actually allocating spending elsewhere it's reformulating the state and reformulating a country and people into something that is more more market-based yeah. right and you can see that in like public debt is always raised whenever there's a socialist solution to something a redistributive policy yeah. there's always the problem of public debt you can't pay people because you can't give people money because the debt the debt hmm. that's never raised for any of these infrastructure projects it's considered that there'll always be a benefit even though you know they'll add billions of pounds to a public debt yeah um and of course, there's the that that's the element of like creative destruction about these projects. Most of the other infrastructure in Britain has been kind of wholesale looted, parcelled up, and sold off. So you continually have to create new things, mm. but you need a state formation that is useful for getting those kind of projects passed. Right? Um, when they talk about like when when kind of neoliberals or, or global capitalists talk about advantageous investment climates or or whatever they don't just mean low taxes or providing kind of sleek modern living for executives mm. but what they mean is that a country has to have enough physical assets that can be privatized and sold on and put into the market space and once you run out of those as britain is increasingly doing you have to have a state that is capable of making more mm. The modern capitalist state must look like the kind of country that is willing to slap down large sums of cash for shite. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And just a final point about the other dimension of this is not just with money, but with kind of power. Large long-term projects like these 
tie global capital into countries and specific political arrangements Mm. and state structures. I'm thinking of the development in that line city, the Neom city in Saudi Arabia, as an example. Is the US going to abandon Mohammed bin Salman personally if, say, its three largest construction companies are heavily invested into the building of this city in the desert, this Neom city? Mm. It's unlikely, isn't it? Are they going to abandon the system of government that Mohammed bin Salman heads in order to, that, that is the one that ensures this kind of economic activity goes forward. Yeah. That's even less likely. So, like, if you have something like a Corbynite challenge to the status quo, a Tory government is going to go to global business and say, you may not like us, but are you really going to risk having this free-for-all, this bonanza, reined in even a little bit? Yeah. It ensures this coalition between global capital and the state against even the mildest of redistributive projects. Hmm. The original notion of the white element comes from the, this Thai king yeah. who would give a sacred white element to nobles, elephant, elephant to nobles, um, which was a blessing, but also a very heavy cost to maintain something that was largely useless and you yeah. couldn't give away. It also subtly served to quell notions of rebellions because it sucks up so much money that might otherwise be used to purchase influence and purchase soldiers for the nobility and be another power centre. Hmm. In other words, it attempts to freeze social relations between the state and these other alternative power centres. Yeah. And so it's, that's what these large infrastructure projects do. They tie global capital to say, yeah, we're not going anywhere. And if you want this brain to keep going, you better not abandon us. Mm. Not us personally, but also this way of doing business. And so, like, yeah, to answer the question of what was the point of Versailles and why Boris likes these big infrastructure projects, sure, it's there to say we're great, but it's also there to say we're here forever. Mm. Okay, that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDT80W underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to cut my